Hi, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood, and often we may not feel good enough. So I'm here to help you face these challenges head on. Uh, I published a book a few years ago called Mama Doc Medicine. It's about vaccines and work-life balance and kind of love and social-emotional learning and feeding and sleeping. And I often say, you know, I probably could have, like, published a pamphlet about perfecting parenthood in the sense that I think everybody feels like they want to perfect parenthood. Nobody does because that's impossible. And I think I think we get into the upper echelon of parenthood when we're consistent and when we do five things. So I'm just gonna say, if you can do these five things, I'm gonna list them out for you, and you do them well, I think you should like, you know, lick your index finger and go in the sky, because I mean, you should tally one with the heroes. Okay, five things are this. You gotta get outside and move every day. You gotta get your kids' vaccines up to date as early as you can. You gotta prioritize sleep, and that's family sleep, not just baby or kid sleep. You have to use a car seat well and install it properly, and you have to focus a little bit on nutrition. Okay, number one, exercise. So my whole thing is that everyone and every family should be outside and without a ceiling for at least an hour every day. The American Academy of Pediatrics says getting outside for 50 to 60 minutes of activity on most or as many days as possible. And the thing about this is, is that it does not have to be you going to the gym or you going on a run or going on a bike ride or doing an activity that's an organized sport. It really can be broken up into 15-minute segments. So think about it of, you know, thinking about more ways to kind of get out of your car or even get off the bus earlier. So if you or walking to the bus stop, not driving your kids to the bus stop, or um, running to the park, not driving to the park, or you going on a run and your kids on their bike. You know, it's just any combination where you're moving your body outside and without a ceiling. And I look at that, I don't mean like going to a gym for an hour. I mean, you're getting the double bangaroo from being in nature, being outside in weather, feeling good in bad weather, feeling good in great weather, getting kids used to that. Because kids, will, I mean, like, I'm raising kids in Seattle, and let me tell you something, like, they go to recess when it's raining because <laughs> we don't have a choice in Seattle. But I think being without a ceiling every day for 45 to 60 minutes is seriously a, like a knockout when it comes to parenting. And it's, you know, it doesn't happen some days. It just can't some days because of how things unfold. But every day you can possibly do that. I think um, you're racking up good points for yourself. The second thing is it, our vaccines. And I'm a big vaccine advocate. And I believe the science of vaccines. I take to heart the Institute of Medicine report that looked at over a thousand studies and came out saying that the far benefit of vaccines outweighs the risks and adverse events. There are risks to vaccines. Most of them are redness and pain at the injection site, fever sometimes because you're provoking your immune system. But one of the things that you can really do as a parent is keeping your child up to date and getting the immunizations on time. Nine out of 10 parents are doing this, right? So 90% of us have already met this criteria. And that includes an annual flu vaccine because particularly this year, we're seeing really significant high numbers of hospitalizations and pediatric deaths from flu. And we're seeing huge hospitalizations even for adults. And we recommend a flu vaccine for every kid over six months of age 
every year. But it's also just the regular routine vaccinations. We know families who do alternative or even delayed schedules, about half of people who do that, they make it up themselves. So they're not necessarily using any science to detail that. And I, I can't support it because I just don't know what the benefit is. I think it's kind of the illusion of safety without any improved safety. And we know you still get side effects from vaccines if you have them at a different time, but you just increase the number of days or the window of time where your child could get exposed. So I'm saying number two, speak up, ask about immunizations in your child's school, ask about them in your child care center, do your best to just communicate either through your portal, your electronic health record, or even through systems like my IR that we have in the state of Washington, where you can go log in and find out what your child's status is and the school. But I just have to tell you, if you want to be perfecting parenthood, I think following the recommendations and getting your child up to date on immunizations is one of the top five things you can do. Number three, sleep. And I, I can't tell you how much I have to say about sleep in the sense that I know that as decades unfold, we will understand more and more the balance for chronic disease, the balance for mood, the balance for development of what sleep does for us. And I think most of us are actually pretty good at prioritizing our kids' sleep. And even the data on how you do it isn't as important of, of doing it and making it routine. So that I think, I remember I wrote a blog post a years back called Consistency is the Secret Sauce. And that was all about the data that said it doesn't matter if you let your baby cry it out or you don't let your baby cry it out. In the end, if you're consistent, kids do well. And we know that kids with inconsistent bedtimes, so kids who go to bed one night at 8 and then the next night at 9.30 and then the next night at 8.15 and then the next night at 10.20, we know those kids in school age, so in the kind of seven-year-olds and up, they tend to have more challenges at school, more attention challenges and behavior and interruption problems. But the amazing thing is when you take those same kids who are having those developmental and, and behavioral problems at school with inconsistent bedtimes, when you take them and you make and give them a consistent bedtime, those problems go away. So that's the awesome thing. Like if it's not going that well right now, you can make change and you can see better outcomes that way. Starts in the very beginning with our babies and our toddlers and these kind of regular bedtimes. So that's one part of it. But it's also, of course, what people call sleep hygiene. The idea that you get screens out of the bedroom, that in an ideal world, you don't look at any screen for an hour before bedtime so kids fall asleep fast. We know teens sleep for less time and are interrupted during the nighttime if they sleep with, <laughs> with next to and with their cell phone. So in an ideal world, having all those devices like in the kitchen or something. Um, you know, the reality is we know kids who don't get enough sleep they're not going to be their ideal selves. They're going to be ornery. They're going to have more mood challenges. If they're teenagers and they're driving, they're at higher risk for accidents. We know kids who start school really early and don't get as much sleep because their natural clocks don't let them fall asleep till 10 or 11 at night. They are prone to have less um, less performance, I was going to say, like not as good a performance on standardized testing and regular kind of GPA indicators. And we know they're at higher risk for car accidents. And that's been replicated. So these these motions that are going around California and Washington State and all throughout the country and now moving start times back for older kids, you do really want to support that. But lastly, it's really thinking on, you know, since we know sleep is a moderator for attention and behavior and memory and regulation and quality of life, and mental and physical health. I mean, that's true. There's data for all that. Overweight, even, there's data. Risk for cardiovascular disease, there's data on the value of sleep for that. You know, you want to follow it. Babies, you know, in that kind of toddlery time or in the infant time, they'll sleep up to 16 hours a day in total when you include the naps. 
kids who are toddlers sleep 11 to 14, and anywhere between that number is pretty normal. So if you're giving your kid a regular bedtime and they're also adding on a nap, anywhere where they fall between 11 and 14 hours is appropriate. School-age kids need somewhere between 9 and 12 hours. And everybody knows there are just some kids who need a little less and some maybe who need a little more. But there isn't a school-age kid who needs less than 9 hours of sleep. So depending on your wake-up time, you really do want to moderate. Most kids want to fall asleep because their melatonin kicks in around 8 p.m. at night. So setting bed, getting off the devices by 7 o'clock, doing a regular bedtime routine, and making sure all the screens are out of the, out of the bedroom. And then turning the lights off at 8 o'clock makes a lot of sense. But if your child doesn't start school in elementary school till later, and with your family, you get more balance and loving time with them between 8 and 9, and it still works if they can sleep till 7 or 8 in the morning. Like, good. I mean, then shift it to 9 o'clock. Like, do what's great for your family. And then the, the big clencher is, <laughs> is the teen years that I think teens get really busy. They love to connect with peers and friends at nighttime. They're on their screens, and then they're up really early because of activities. And they do need 8.5 to 9.5 hours of sleep, and that's a really hard number to reach. And what will happen when kids and in particular teens, start basically accruing, you know, what's called sleep debt every day. They're not getting enough, then the next day they're not getting enough, the next getting enough. They start to show behaviors of falling asleep during the daytime, wanting to take naps in the afternoon, which is not normal. And then they'll do this thing on the weekends where because of their sleep debt, they'll sleep in until noon. Everybody knows. like, And we call teen, we just kind of say, oh, it's a teenager. But it's also a wake-up call for a family that they're having a sleep debt and that they need to get more sleep during the week. You can't preload sleep, so you can't kind of fill the bank on the weekend and then have a better week. You just kind of have a harder week and then you try your best to kind of catch it up on the weekend. So those can be some some priorities. And then, you know, lastly, it's really to figuring out your sleep. That there, And it's not just about modeling and my finger wagging. It's really thinking on when you're making adjustments to your child's sleep, you probably have to make adjustments to your own. And you have to value that too. And um, sometimes we have to make a lot of changes. But exercising in the afternoon or, or excuse me, in the morning can really help with your circadian rhythm. It does help still in the afternoon. It's just better in the morning. Getting off of caffeine for kids and teens and adults, some, you know, not having caffeinated beverages after two or three in the afternoon, all those things can really help. But I'm telling you, if your child's having emotional challenges, if they're having anxiety, if they're having trouble focusing in school, if they're not getting along with peers, if they're not getting along with you, I am not exaggerating when I say start with improving sleep. And I believe you will see such an improvement. Though that's number three. Like if you're really working on sleep, and you're working on getting the vaccines up to date, and you're getting outside every day, I mean, you're, you're kind of nailing it. Number four, car seats. I will say, parents really want to nail this one. Like, I, I don't, I'm not convincing anybody here. I think everybody who drives their kids around wants to make sure they're not pulling a Britney Spears, right? And like, you know, throwing their kid in the back. Or like, remember when... Um, the prince, the prince came home, like buckled in the car seat the wrong way from the duchess. And like, you know, like, okay, so celebrities have made some mistakes with their photo ops. But the reality is like most parents really want to do this well. We do know, though, that, you know, many of the injuries that happens to kids, it's not because there isn't a car seat at all. It's that it's not installed or it's not used properly. So a couple quick golden rules. You know, I, I called I call this two is the new one, meaning kids should be rear facing in a car seat until they're at least two years of age. Some kids can stay rear facing longer based on what their seat says and how much they weigh. So you can look at the side of yet of that. You know, babies typically have those infant bucket seats. And then around a year, we'll switch to some of those what are called convertible seats that go rear facing. Um, some kids can stay rear facing till even over age three, and they will be safer that way. So it's always safe if you're 
seat accommodates rear facing up to the weight that your child is to keep them that way. Um, you know, secondly, it's just making sure that you're positioned and using the safest um, positioning techniques in the car. Safest place is always the middle seat in the back seat. I always say the kid who has the least protection should be in that seat, meaning that, you know, the safest car seat out there is the bucket facing the back. The next is the convertible seat facing the back. Then you decrease protection when you turn your kid forward. Then you decrease protection when they go to a booster. Then you decrease protection when they just go to a seatbelt. And then you really decrease protection when they go to the front seat. So each and every time you make a transition, they have less protection in the case of an accident or slowdown. Um, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics site, healthychildren.org, they, you know, report in the car seat pages are the number one trafficked pages. So I know you guys care and are looking. We all care so much about this, but I think, I think we can do a great job. And then one last thing, Thing on boosters everybody wants to get onto the booster seat. Like these kids, of course, they want to be big grown-ups. The big benefit that I think you can keep advertising to your kids is they can see out the windows a lot better when they're in those boosters because they get way low down when they're not in them anymore. And what we're trying to do there is just position the seatbelt so that's on the top of the thighs, not the tummy, and so that it kind of the cross belt goes over their sternum right at the center and kind of halfway across their collarbone so it's not on their neck and they're not, you know, flipping it back behind their shoulder. You know, kids, if the seatbelts, if they're in a seat and not in a booster need to be, what will happen is that that seatbelt will sit on their belly and we do see severe life-threatening injuries when a kid, um, you know, in a car accident environment and that seatbelt goes on the tummy, there's no bone to bolster that. So you always want seatbelts to be on the bony parts of the body so that in a quick slowdown they really protect you but don't damage your organs. Car seats. Your baby is five times safer and 75% less likely to die in an accident if they stay rear-facing until at least age two. So take that one off. I know we're all kind of aligned on that. And then lastly, nutrition. So there are a couple different things I think that are kind of easy ones. It's an endurance sport. I said this in a blog recently. I mean, and it's true. Like, we're feeding our kids for a lifetime, and we're teaching them to feed for a lifetime. A trip here and there to the candy aisle and a trip here and there to junk food is not a problem at all. And I feel really strongly that no single food should ever be forbidden. I think it just makes it too desirable, and it makes you want it way too much. So it's just a balance. But I think trying to, you know, follow some of the myplate.gov and, and some of the advice from people like Ellen Satter. She's E-L-L-Y-N. S-A-T-T-E-R. She's a nutritionist. She's got a great website. Um, but number one is when you look at the plate or the food, at breakfast, lunch, snacks, and dinner, 50% of it should be fresh fruit and veggies. I mean, if you're doing that, you are doing this right. And that doesn't mean that's exactly what your kid eats, but it's what you're providing. And that kind of goes into Ellen Satter's philosophies around what she calls the division of labor, which is just kind of a go-to in pediatric nutrition. But it's really this. Parents' job is to buy healthy food and provide it. A kid's job is to eat the food, choose it, and, how, and eat how much of it. So your job is to fill a plate, ideally, fresh fruit and vegetables on half of it, and then other foods, and have little peace offerings, things that your kids like here and there, and continue to eat with them, and continue to offer it. And over time, data really shows that kids really do learn how to eat well. Um, nearly 80% of kids um, between age one and three eat too much salt. And, and the, the reason that really matters is that liking salt we think might contribute to cardiovascular disease and blood pressure challenges and health problems later in life. And that's oddly a little bit controversial right now, but most people still believe that limiting salt intake can set a child up for a healthier life. And we know kind of having a salt tooth as opposed to a sugar and sweet tooth 
is a learned habit, just like sweetness. So, you know, avoiding those sugary beverages like just, uh, you know, non-diluted fruit juice and sports drinks and, you know, kind of Kool-Aid-y tang type stuff early in life. You don't want to do it with toddlers and preschoolers because it's bad for their oral health, but it's also bad because they just start to crave sweet beverages more than just craving, you know, low-fat milk or water. Same is true with salt. So if you eat a lot of packaged food, I mean, the majority of salt in our diet is not from the table salt shaker. It's from packaged foods like soups, um, packaged and prepared meals that come, you know, like little like TV dinner type things or little like raviolis in cans or raviolis in the freezer, chicken nuggets, prepared French fries and potato products. All those things in those wrappers tend to have a lot of sodium. So you can look at the label and look at the percentages on the back of sodium, but remember that those are based on adult numbers. You can look quickly online if you care to look at the numbers based on age um, and size for kids. But the bottom line is just get rid of some of that processed food as much as you can um, and or buy reduced sodium um, when you can too because you're going to help your kid not be a salt craver for the rest of their life. So, you know, government recommendations, which sound really official, you know, talk about kids needing between one and three cup of veggies a day. So that's kind of a good way to look. I mean, I actually like some of the resources. One of the other really traffic pages at the American Academy of Pediatrics site, Healthy Children, is really about different meal ideas for one-year-olds and different meal ideas for infants. And, like, that's a great place to go because sometimes we just get really, like, burnt out of feeding our kids the same things. Just keep introducing. I can't say that enough. Keep introducing different fresh fruits and veggies. But most of our kids need a number of cups of fresh fruit and vegetables, and a lot of them can be raw, and they can dip them in things. I mean, they don't have to be without fats around them, you know. You can use ranch dressing. You can toss little pea pods in, in the pan with a little olive oil and even a little table salt. And if your kids love them that much more, do it. The American Academy of Pediatrics five-step approach to eating habit, um, eating healthy food, I'm going to read to you because I think it's kind of helpful. Choose food from five groups, veggies, fruits, grains, dairy, and protein sources, which can be meats, fish, nuts, seeds, and eggs. So, of course, like, remember the pyramid we all learned in, like, high school or maybe not health class, whatever that is? Offer a variety of food experiences. So, you know, in an ideal world, you don't want to eat in a distracted way. So you don't want to have screens on at dinner time. In an ideal world, which is not – it's hard with all of our families, you don't want to eat when you're in the car because you're not thinking about how you feel. And then you really just don't want kids to plunk down with an entire container of food. So if you're going to give your kids some pretzels for a snack, and that's, you know, a high salt thing, but it's a snack that you're going to give them, pour them in a bowl. Like, put a cup of them in a bowl, and then your kid will finish the bowl instead of reaching into the bag and kind of finishing half the bag. Because when you're doing something like watching TV or doing homework or playing a video game, you're not thinking about how your body feels when you eat. And what you want kids to do is when they're hungry, eat. And when they're stop and they're full, they stop on their own. And kids who learn how to do that and are offered a really good food source of half, you know, fresh fruits and veggies, they won't have as many likely challenges with overweight because they'll learn to eat and feel their body when they're eating and stop when they're full. And you won't have to kind of, you know, fight about it. We certainly know wars and food fights and pressure and clean plate club is not good for creating healthy eating. So that pressure and those tantrums and like, you know, the kind of fight over food tends to kind of blow up and always go in the wrong direction for kids. Um, number three on the academies thing, avoid highly processed foods. So same thing I was talking about with salt. You know, you just want to get as few things in packages as possible, although, you know, they're helpful for us in our busy lives. And then avoid amounts of sugar, salt, oils, and fats. You know, th- 
a small amount of those is always okay. And that's the same thing with those veggies. Like, I, you know, kids need fats and need oils to develop. But you just don't want that to kind of be the mainstay of their diet. So like cheese, high fat, but a great source and snack. Great for their teeth, great for their body, great calcium source, vitamin D. Nuts are the same way. They're really high fat and full of oils, but they're a really good snack. They fill kids up really fast because they're high protein. So those kind of handfuls of almonds or a handful of cheese and apple slices that you can pre-prepare, put in the fridge, get ready for the next day and take to school is great. My kids have recently been obsessed with this little like, I guess this is a little promotional. It's called like snackies or something. It's like a cup on one part and then there's a little like snack container on the top. But what I love about it is they want to pack it for school. So then I can say, well, you can choose from these six foods and you can decide kind of what and how much of that you want to take for snacks. So I think when kids are actually designing their own snacks too, it really helps. But you got to be in charge of what the choices are. Um, and then, you know, appropriate portions. Grazing is totally okay. Some kids just want to eat a little bit all day long, and that's actually pretty healthy because it means they're following that hunger pattern and then following when they're satiated. Um, it starts in toddlerhood for some, and then we kind of move everybody to these three meals. But that, that that's okay. I think it's just thinking on when you are in a style where you're really eating at mealtime, you do want to kind of think on if you're using a plate that each serving doesn't touch it each other. Like they don't need to be heaping. So for children in general with a plate, and you can use an appetizer size plate. There's some data to show they've used smaller plates. People don't overeat as much. But you put a serving at 12 o'clock on the clock phase, three o'clock, six o'clock, and nine o'clock, and they probably shouldn't touch. And then once they've finished things, you know, if it's a bunch of noodles and then a bunch of fresh fruits and veggies and all they eat is the noodles and then they want more noodles, I mean I just can't tell you. I think you just hold out because no kid starves themselves when there's a full refrigerator. And I think kids over time really get used to and get hungry for those yummy snacks. See, you have this. You've got this. This is so easy. Go outside every day, be without a ceiling, move around, get the vaccines up to date, work on sleep, use the car seats, use websites to help support how you use them. Make sure you put a mark on the wall at four foot nine off the ground and not until your kid gets to four foot nine should they get out of that booster seat. So you don't even have to talk about it. They can just keep measuring themselves and standing next to the line. And when they hit the line, you can probably get rid of the booster. And then nutrition, do your best. Fill up your cart with half fresh fruits and vegetables every time you go to the grocery. That'll probably mean half the stuff you put on the plate will be fresh fruits and veggies too. Five things. You're a parenting pro. The reality is parenting is a high stakes job. The good news is you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from. 